Thank you for listening to Christ Church Showmans. This is Jared Sparks, one of the pastors at Christ Church Carbondale. We want to thank you so much for listening, as Ransom said, my son. And we ultimately hope that these are God-honoring. And because they are God-honoring, we hope that they are also edifying and encouraging and, and challenging to you in the best sort of way. Thanks so much for listening. Today we are moving in the book of Hosea from the story of Hosea and Gomer into the word that Hosea has for Israel. The word is going to be primarily for Judah and then sec- excuse me, Israel and secondarily for Judah. And we have to keep in mind the story of Hosea and Gomer for the rest of the book, but now we primarily hear what Hosea said instead of seeing what Hosea did. So this message is largely to the northern kingdom. And in the northern kingdom, they had just experienced years and years of peace and prosperity. And it's on the heels of peace and prosperity that Hosea speaks to the people of God. We're going to get some highlights from the first big address that Hosea has for his people. And we're going to have to hear and understand that what God's word for Hosea um, from Hosea to Israel was, it's going to have impact on our congregation here today and also for the church as a whole. It needs to be said that there is no prophet alive today that's a prophet like Hosea. Hosea's words were for all of God's people for all of time, specifically to that northern kingdom, but it impacts us here today. I am not a prophet of God, but I am proclaiming the words of a prophet of God. And because it was for all of God's people, it's important that we, that we receive these words for us first, this local congregation, this assembly, we receive the words of Hosea, not just to ancient Israel and ancient uh, northern, northern kingdom, but we're also going to receive it for us here today. But we also have to speak to the church as a whole because Hosea's words were for all of God's people. And because they were for all of God's people, they're for all of God's people in all of time. And so if preachers are going to faithfully preach this book of the Bible or any prophetic work in the Old Testament... We have to see that there are implications for the big C church. Now regularly, I speak to our church and anybody that's up here preaching, we're always going to say the impact of the words that are spoken are first to our assembly. This is who we've been entrusted with. I've not been entrusted with being a pastor to the church as a whole. Our elders have not been entrusted with being uh, pastors as the church as a whole. We've been entrusted with this local assembly. This is the deposit that's been entrusted to us. But occasionally, we have to, if we're going to be preaching the word faithfully, we have to say some things to the Big C Church. So we have to address the church in Carbondale, or the church globally, or the church regionally. Because Hosea was speaking, and it didn't just impact those immediate hearers, it impacted all of the northern kingdom. So today, and the following weeks, we're going to be speaking some things about the universal church, as well as the local assembly. In the last two years... It's a a, a prime time to preach prophetic literature because as God brought the hammer through the prophets to Israel, the hammer needs to be laid and the axe needs to be laid at the root of a lot of issues that we see in our day today. And so brace yourself because some of the things that Hosea says to Israel need to be said strongly to the church in America and the church around the globe, and it's going to be pretty ripe. God's words to Israel in chapter 4, verse 1 through 3. Now what we're going to get today is a series of indictments about different kinds of people within God's people. Indictments. And the first indictments that's going to come is to the church, or excuse me, to the people of Israel as a whole. Look at verse 1. Hear the word of the Lord, O children of Israel. For the Lord 
has a controversy with the inhabitants of the land. There is no faithfulness or steadfast love and no knowledge of God in the land. There is swearing, lying, murder, stealing, and committing adultery. They all break all bounds, and bloodshed follows bloodshed. Therefore the land mourns, and all who dwell in it languish, and also the beasts of the field and the birds of the heavens, and even the fish of the sea are taken away. There's going to be a series or waves of indictments. The first indictment is with God's people Israel as a whole, specifically in the northern kingdom. Number one, we find out that there's no faithfulness or steadfast love in the land. There's a lot of faithlessness where there should be faithfulness. Remember, this is the group of people that have the promises of God. This is the group of people that Deuteronomy chapter 7 says had been chosen out of all the nations of the world. All the nations of the world and God said, you're my people. And God had been faithful to that people over and over again to deliver them from slavery, to provide for them, to give them land, good land, flowing with milk and honey. He was faithful to overthrow Canaanite cities and nations and give them land that they did not work, vineyards that they did not plant, houses that they did not build. And yet God was faithful to them over and over and over again. Through the periods of the judges, the judges would rise and fall and the people would rise and fall. So faithfulness or faithlessness would come and then God, they would cry out and God would rescue them. God had been faithful to them over and over and over again. And as we have been seeing, the people of God, just like Gomer, had been turning aside. And instead of being faithful, they had been faithless. And God's indictment toward them is that there's no faithfulness in the land, no steadfast love, not even knowledge of God in the land. And instead of holiness, there's swearing, lying, murdering, stealing, and committing adultery. There's bloodshed that follows bloodshed. And where holiness should reign supreme, where gratefulness, where response to God should be present, instead, sinfulness was there. Rebellion against God. There's not even knowledge of God in the land. God's people looked more like the world than they did the people of God. There was no distinction. They looked just like the other false religions around them, the other people that were following false gods, there was no distinction. They looked the same, they dressed the same, they talked the same, everything was the same. They worshipped false gods just like the other nations did. Why did this happen? It needs to be a warning to those who claim to be God's people today. We see our parallels from the beginning of this chapter with our day today. This should be a warning for all those who claim to be God's people that we should not look like the world. There should be a difference. We should be a city that sat upon a hill. We should be a light for the world to look at. It's a warning to those who would claim to be God's people. We should have a totally different value system. There should be knowledge of God in our midst. There should be holiness among us. We should have different values, different education, totally different culture than those around us. And praise God, I think that that's happening, that's rising up in churches all across this land where there is a marked difference between the people of God and those who are pagan, following the prince of the power of the air. There is this difference. Now sadly, there's this soupy middle that we're going to be talking about here today in a little bit of those who claim the name of God who look no different whatsoever from the world. And that is a massive problem. We, we see in verse 1 that there is no knowledge of God in the land. Again, it's an indictment against the people of God. If you would have taken a, a poll or a survey of people all throughout the Middle, the Middle East, Middle East, 
The people of God should have been, Israel and Judah, both should have been the ones that knew the most about God. They're the ones that had experienced God's faithfulness. They're the ones that had the law of Moses preached to them. They're the ones that were to be going to the temple. And yet, there was no knowledge of God in their midst. God's people didn't know about God. Now, Ligonier Ministries, this is R.C. Sproul's ministry, every few years, they put together a state of theology address. So they put this together and it ends up being a document that they they get printed out and they just give uh, a report on the state of theology in America. And it, it, it compares and contrasts the regular average American and what they think to be true or false based on the questions given. And then they go to evangelicals that claim to be confessing evangelicals, and then they give them a series of questions and see how they respond to these series of questions. Now listen to this. I didn't talk about, I didn't even look at, I'm not even reporting to you what people in America said. It's just, it's crazy weird stuff. But I I want you to hear what so-called evangelicals responded, how they responded to these questions. This question is, Jesus was a good teacher, but he was not God. So, Yes, do you agree or disagree? 30% of people agreed with the statement that Jesus was a good teacher, but he was not God. 30%, 3 of 10, polled evangelical Americans responded that Jesus is a good teacher, but Jesus is not God. 3 in 10. This statement, listen to the response. Everyone sins a little, but most people are good by nature. 46% of confessing evangelicals agreed that people are good by nature in 2021 as everything burns yeah people are generally good 46 out of a hundred confessing evangelicals agreed that people are good by nature at least we sort of get this one correctly and we see as we contrast this answer to the answer that follows, God counts a person righteous, not because of one's works, but only because of one's faith in Christ Jesus. 84% agreed. Yes, that's good. 84 out of 100 agreed. But the very next question is saddening because it says this, God accepts the worship of all, all religions, including Christianity, Judaism, and Islam. 42% agreed. 42% of confessing evangelical Christians throughout the United States that were polled, agreed that God accepts the worship of all religions. Christianity, Judaism, Islam. 42% agreed. So 84% agreed to the statement that one's justified not by works, but by faith in Christ. But 42% say that God accepts the worship of all these different religions. And we consider where we're at today... And we think about, we have pockets of orthodoxy throughout this country, of good churches, of Bible-believing, Jesus-loving people. But then we have massive, I mean, whole groups of people. We have churches in this community that celebrate the gay pride parade that happens every single year, that, that fly trans flags in their church buildings and claim to be Christians. They have the banner above them, the people of God, but they do not have any knowledge of God in their midst at all. This is a problem. I think we can all agree that when 42 out of 100 confessing evangelical Christians say that God accepts all worship, just make sure it's genuine and and you're good. You get a high five and a, a slap on the butt, everything's good, you're good with God, just be genuine. 
we have a massive problem in our midst. And we may not have that problem in our church. I, I think if we were to get these answers back, our church would do a really stellar job of all these questions, we would, or all these statements. We would just absolutely crush it and hit it out of the park. And yet we see there is a problem. Look at verse 4 and 5 because we see we get to some of the root of the problem here in the next couple sections. Verse 4, you let no one contend and no one accuse, for with you is my contention, O priest. You shall stumble by day. The prophet also shall stumble with you by night, and I will destroy your mother. My people are destroyed for lack of knowledge because you have rejected knowledge. I reject you from being a priest to me. And since you have forgotten the law of your God, I will also forget your children. In verse 4 and 5, we find out that the people were not listening to the clergy. And part of the reason they were not listening to the priest is because the priest had nothing good to say whatsoever. So there is a a little bit of a question when it comes to verse 4, and I want to clear that up, because if you have an NASB, you're going to see that the, the verse, the second part of verse 4, reads differently than what I just read. If you have the ESV, it says, for, your, for with you is my contention, O priest. So it makes it seem like the priest is the one that God is immediately concerned with, not the people. The reason the ESV chose this confusing Hebrew phrase to be translated this way is because in verse 6, God says, I reject you from being a priest to me. And so what the ESV concludes in the confusing Hebrew phrase in verse 4 is that the address is being made to the priest. However, the NASB, the NASB translates verse 4, the second half of verse 4, like this. For you, for your people, are like those who contend with the priest. And you can see in your ESV, you've got a little note at the bottom where the alternative translation is, for your people are those who contend with the priest. And we have to qu- ask a question, okay, well, well, which is it? Is it a contention with those who are not listening to the priest, or is this a contention with the priest? Because really how this phrase is translated in the Hebrew really is consequential on how we understand the passage. I think it's important for us to know that every once in a while, Bible translators, as they're looking at Hebrew, Greek, and Aramaic, have difficulty translating a word or a phrase into English. And it's important to us to know as we're reading our our, our Bible translations, we have to know that translations, please hear me say this, translations are not inerrant. That's why you'll see a phrase translated differently. The original manuscripts of the scriptures are what's inerrant. That is the inspired texts of scripture, both in the New and the Old Testament. And we have the contents of the original manuscripts in both the Greek, Hebrew, and Aramaic in the fact that we have so many documents that are down throughout history, so many documents and ancient manuscripts, the original manuscripts rise up from the page even though we don't have the actual full original manuscripts. When you have thousands of documents thousands of documents, what ends up happening is you're able to see words that the scribes got wrong in one document because you have 50 other documents, or in the case of our manuscripts, like 5,500 documents of texts of Scripture with just the New Testament alone. What you're able to see is that this scribe on this document missed this word because all of these other manuscripts that we have translate that word this way. So you're able to see the error in the translation, or excuse me, in the transcribing because you have so many manuscripts available. Now, when we bump into a Hebrew phrase, 
like in verse 4, that can be translated in a couple different ways, which is very rare. Translators have to make a decision based on the best words we have in the English language to try to understand the ancient Hebrew in the best way we possibly can. So, the NASB, they translated verse 4 as it talking to God's people refusing to listen to the priests. And the ESV sees it all as one section to the priest. And here's what I think. I think based on the commentators that I had read and the work that I did on the text this week is that the NASB got it right. And what God is contending with is both the people for refusing to listen and the priest for preaching out nonsense. That the condemnation is coming down on both of them. So the alternative reading in the ESV for verse 4 is that my contention is with those who are like people who contend with the priest. And then he addresses the priests starting in verse 6. So why is this important? (laughs) Number one, the people of God were not listening to the priests. They were unwilling. Their ears were plugged. We are not going to listen to those who are appointed by God to be teachers of His Word. We are not going to go to the priests. We are not going to listen to the priests. And so the people had an unwillingness to hear from God. They would not go and do what God had required them to go and do. They were unwilling to listen to prophet. They were unwilling to listen to priests. They were unwilling to make sacrifices in the way God would have them. And instead, they went on in their swearing, their lying, and their deceit. Their consciences were seared. They would not listen to the priest. And we live in a day today where people want their ears tickled. They have their itching ears. And what we do, if we don't want to hear God's Word straight and as it is, is we go to a place we'll that will itch our ears. And we see this all across this land of churches filled, massive church buildings filled with people who go and they just accumulate for themselves teachers that will tell them what they want to hear. Because we don't like getting stepped on. We don't like the Holy Spirit convicting us. And so for those who are going to be like ancient Israel and refuse to do what God would have them do, they will go and listen to somebody that will make them feel good in their rebellion. They will say it's no big deal. The same thing happens today. And I have to to believe that God's word to Israel, to those who had plugged their ears to the priest and not do what God would require of them, would say a very similar thing today. Woe to you who do not listen to those who are preaching and doing what God would require them to do. And so the people were not listening. But the sad thing is, even if they were listening, the priests were, were corrupt as well. The corruption went all the way down. It wasn't just with the people who were refusing to hear. It's also with the clergy themselves. The clergy were corrupt and corrupt all the way down to the bottom. Look at verse 6. For my people are destroyed for lack of knowledge because they have, you, have rege- you have rejected knowledge. And then he turns to the priest. I reject you from being a priest to me. And since you have forgotten the law of your God, I will also forget your children. PKs have been around for a long time. Priests, kids. Verse 7, the more they increased, the more they sinned against me. And I will change their glory into shame. They feed on the sin of my people. They're greedy for their iniquity. And it shall be like people, like priest. Think like father, like son, like people, like priest. I will punish them for their ways and repay them for their deeds. The clergy are corrupt. The people were being destroyed because they have no knowledge. Why did the people not have knowledge? 
And the blame here is laid squarely on the clergymen. Those who were called to do the work of God, to stand there as representatives of the people and to make sacrifices for the people. The priests were not doing their job. They were asleep on the job. They were not doing their duties. And they were doing what they were doing for all the wrong reasons. It says that they have loved the sin. They feed on the sins of my people. They're greedy for their iniquity. Rather than the priests being and longing and praying for and crying out for the holiness of the people of God, they were greedy for their iniquity. It was like they fed on the sins of people. If they're in worse condition, I've got job security. And instead of doing what God had called them to do, the priest had even forgotten God's law. It says that in verse 6. And since you have forgotten the law of your God, I will forget your children. It is uh, a sad, sad truth that's seen everywhere. When I say a PK, you know what I'm talking about. Many of you do if you grew up in the church. A PK is a preacher's kid. And I have three preacher's kids. And there are two of them are talking right there. Ransom Valor, how you guys doing? You guys listening? Okay, good. Good. Uh, a, a preacher's kid is this notorious, rebellious child or children of a pastor. And the caricature of that pastor is he's busy with everybody else in the church. And so busy that he does not have time to manage his home. And the Bible says that man is disqualified for ministry. If you can't manage your own household, how can you manage the church of God? And instead of pastors whose, whose children walk away in rebellion, or rebellious even as they live in their house, instead of pastors resigning and getting their house in order, they defend and they take a posture and they say, well, you know, my children have, have been lured away. Or they don't even take responsibility for their actions. And what every pastor needs to know, what every priest needed to know, what happens in your home is your responsibility. The priests... Children were going to be forgotten. The priests were so corrupt, and it was even seen in their homes. Today, false teachers are like these priests who neglect everything that needs to be cared for and given attention to. Verse 9, it says, like people, like priests. These people wanted, these priests wanted the people to sin, and what ends up happening is a parallel between the priests and the people. Like father, like son, like people, like priest. And what ended up happening in Israel is that the people ended up becoming like the priests. And what you'll see in a church over a long period of time is that the church will typically go with the health of the elders. If the elders are committed to godliness and committed God's word and committed to loving God's people, what ends up happening in a congregation is a healthy congregation, healthy households, healthy people. But over time, if the pastors are not walking in holiness the church will end up reaping the effects of the sins of the pastoral team. And if our elders are not committed to personal holiness, if I am not committed to personal holiness, it ends up revealing itself in time within a local assembly. And that's why you see churches all over that have testimonies years ago of faithfulness, God doing amazing things, and then all of a sudden you find out something's been happening in pastoral ministry, or you start seeing that, why is it that people here look just like the world and don't look like what we're supposed to look like as we're reading the scriptures, and you find out it's because holiness isn't taken seriously even from the pastoral team. Church discipline isn't taking place, accountability is nowhere to be seen. 
pastors start silly, saying silly things like, well, pastors can't be friends with people in their church because people in the church don't know what it means to be a pastor. And they, you know, I can't be held accountable by anybody that's in the church. They just don't understand the pressure that we're under. And they say silly and ridiculous things like that. And they say, well, accountability is for you, but it's not for me. And the moment a pastor has fake or farce accountability, you're just, it's just a, 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 a few years down the road that the church is going to end up either imploding or that church or that pastor is going to end up failing. Like people, like priests, it's a principle that's been seen in ancient Israel and it's seen all the way up to this point today. False teachers, like these unfaithful priests, will not go unpunished. They will not go unpunished. These priests will be held accountable. God explicitly says, I reject you from being a priest to me. A priest in name, but not in duties. For us, we got to think about the church as a whole. And to preach it faithfully, you have to consider the churchmen. In Carbondale, the churchmen in Southern Illinois, the churchmen in Illinois, the churchmen of our land, and the churchmen throughout the world. The word is thrown around so often in this passage. In fact, I want you to see it. Verse 9, And it shall be like people, like priests. I will punishment them for their ways and repay them for their deeds. Look at verse 10. They shall eat but not be satisfied. Still talking about the priests. They shall play the whore but not be multiplied. Because they have forsaken the Lord to cherish whoredom, wine, and new wine, which take them away from understanding. Take away the understanding. The priests, even the priests, were living like Gomer. The priests were living like Gomer. Those that the people of God should have been able to turn to and trust their leadership, trust what they were doing, that they were doing the things that God had called them to do. Even there was whoredom, wine, new wine, which took away understanding. What's the equivalent today? Well, I think there's also a warning, not just to the people of God, to listen to God's men, to listen to God's word, to walk in holiness rather than to walk in sinfulness, but there's also a message to the churchmen of the day. False teachers and bad churchmen are whores. They're whores. It's an indictment on them. Myself and all of God's men must be faithful to give God's people God's word and to do our duties the way God would call us to do them. We must manage our households well. We must love God's people. And most importantly, we must love God. Churchmen must not play the whore. They must feed the sheep. They cannot want the attention of people who hate God more than they want the approval of God. And I see it. All over the place. Pastors ravenous for the praises of people who hate God. And they say it's all for God's glory and all for the mission. It's lies. False teachers, again, are whores. The priests are like those loose women in verse 10. False teachers are silent on sexual sins, conveniently silent on anything that the world would judge them for. Tiptoeing or apologizing for what God doesn't apologize for. I'm sorry it's like this, but God's word says it. I'm sorry. I wish it wasn't this way. I love you. We're really compassionate. 
And it's almost as if they're trying to say, I'm sorry God's mean, we're more compassionate than God. We really wish God wasn't like this. We really wish God wouldn't judge the world according to their sins. We wish God was a little more gracious. A call to be a pastor is a call to be targeted by the world and hated for tearing down cultural idols. It's a call when everybody else in the land is, is, is not giving a big deal about sexual ethics within the Christian faith. It's a call to stand up and say anything that goes against God's word is a violation of God and they will reap the reward of their sins and it will be God's wrath upon them. Anything outside of sex between a man and a woman who are married in a lifelong commitment together is anathema and nobody can experience the blessing of God in sexual rebellion. And it's easy, it's easy, it's easy to say, gosh, I wish God didn't say it was wrong to be gay or it was wrong to have sex outside of marriage or just be loose with your sexuality. I wish it was, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. Conveniently silent on anything that the world would judge them for. The priest of ancient Israel, the clergyman of 2021. For all the so-called pastors across the land who have required masks for worship, who have refused to sing, who have required social distancing or online services, withholding communion from God's people who refuse to go along with their tyrannical commands, they are playing the whore and they must repent. I have people that have reached out to me that said, I can't go to my local church, they won't let me go unless I'm wearing a mask. Requiring God's people to violate conscience. It's no big deal if you want to wear a mask. But if any pastor stands up and says, for you to come and receive the Lord's table or for you to sing, you have to put this on. Don't ever go to a church that gives the state authority over that church. Don't ever be a part of that. And many of us are going to, as I've stated in the past, many of us are going to be in situations where we're going to move or work is going to call us away and we're going to be looking and praying to try to find a local church because we love the church. And we're going to have to find an imperfect church just like this assembly is imperfect. And I, I want to challenge you, remember it today. Do not go to a church that just hands over their God-given authority. Fearing the violation of man's laws more than they fear violating God's laws. It says here, they do not even know they've forgotten the law of the Lord your God, in verse 6. The priest, and today, the churchmen of our day all across the world, they fear the laws of men more than the laws of God. False shepherds with a smile and a seer and a sneer will turn you over to the local sheriff and turn you over happily, throwing you onto the bus, send you to be arrested rather than standing there and being arrested for you. Jordan this week talked to Aaron Coates, or last week, Aaron Coates, if you didn't catch this, this podcast episode, it was a phenomenal, fruitful, and fearless episode where she interviews Aaron Coates, who's the wife of James Coates in Canada. And James Coates was the first Western pastor ever to be arrested for simply being faithful to God's word. First pastor in the West. 
They were meeting, gathering for, for church, and he was arrested, put in jail for 35 days. And as other pastors were emboldened within the nation, other pastors were calling, trying to get other churches to stand. Eleven churches stood with Pastor James. Only eleven. They called every church. Pastor Tim Stevens was one of those churches. And as he was pastoring, their elders were emboldened by Pastor James going to jail. Emboldened, they said, that's it. We're gathering this Sunday. We don't care what anybody says. He starts calling every church he could in Alberta, Canada. And only 11 responded in support of Pastor James and Grace Church. 11. That's it. And as I listened to that, I was fired up. You might have been able to tell I had an Instagram story this week that was all about courage and cowards and all this stuff. It was after listening and editing that episode, and I was listening just so angry. Why would you not stand with your fellow brother? Why would you not stand to honor the Lord Jesus Christ? Why would you do the bidding of the Canadian government rather than the bidding of God? Eleven churches. That's it. And here we are. In 2021, what a great time to go through an Old Testament prophetic book, right? What a great time to call everybody in the land whores. And yet these 11 churches emboldened, and I would take 11 churches throughout all of Canada willing to stand than thousands who are willing to hand over their authority to the state. I'll take that group of mighty men, mighty churches, over thousands of cowardly people. So what happens? What's in, what ends up happening to a church, or what ends up happening to ancient Israel when even the priests are corrupt? Well, what happens? Verse 12 through 14 answers that question. My people inquire of a piece of wood. They take their walking staff and give them oracles. For a spirit of whoredom has led them astray, and they have left their God to play the whore. They've sacrificed on the tops of mountains and burnt offerings on the hills under oak, poplar, and terebinth because their shade is good. Therefore, your daughters play the whore and your brides commit adultery. And I will not punish your daughters when they play the whore, nor your brides when they commit adultery. For the men themselves go aside with prostitutes and sacrifice with cult prostitutes. And people without understanding shall come to ruin. What happens when the clergy are bad? What happened in Israel, when the priests were corrupt, corrupt. Well, bad clergy, as we've already stated, always leads to a bad result with the people of God. Bad clergy led to the worship of false gods. Look how foolish Israel became. They started talking to a piece of wood. Hey, pulpit, will you tell me what I'm supposed to do here? Will you send me rain? Thank you for the deliverance out of Egypt, pulpit. Will you please just speak to me? Give me some oracles. Give me some prophecy. And instead of turning to the living God who had been faithful to them, they start inquiring from a piece of wood, talking to their walking staffs, walking around. Give me a prophecy, walking staff. You see how they degenerated into foolishness. Like the priest, like the people. Like the priest, like the people. Bad leaders replicate themselves, and it had utterly devastating consequences. If the church, therefore, has bad pastors, how will the churches be healthy? Look what else is happening in verse 14. We find in verse 14, we see that their daughters won't even be punished for their whoredom. Now, this is incredibly 
fascinating to me because already God had held Gomer responsible for her sinfulness. We saw that. That God didn't make Gomer the victim. And yet we see in verse 14, there's going to be some responsibility laid upon the men of Israel. And the failures of the men of Israel ended up being consequential in the lives of the wives and the daughters within Israel. In verse 14, we hear this. I will not punish the daughters when they play the whore, nor your brides when they commit adultery. For the men themselves go aside with prostitutes and sacrifice with cult prostitutes. And people without understanding shall come to ruin. God turns to the men and says, look at their actions. I'm not even going to punish them for their whoredom, for their adultery, because the responsibility lays on you. Men, your actions are consequential. My actions are consequential. Although God blamed Gomer for her actions, men in Israel led the way into this sexual immorality. Even with King David or with Solomon, you see as you look in ancient Israel, this problem of polygamy and bad sexuality that was never, con- that was never condoned or commanded by God. It was allowed for a season. But we see sex leads a man into places that are devastating for those around them. It's never just a silent sin. It's never an innocent sin. These men were going into prostitutes and even sacrificing with them. The sinful actions of the daughters and the wives were a direct result of the sins of the husbands and fathers. We cannot expect our households to thrive for people in our homes to thrive. Over the long haul, if we will not take holiness seriously, your sins will find you out in your family. And it's very rare, very rare, for a wife or a woman to retain zeal and joy in Christ in a home where the man is spiritually lethargic or ungodly. Men, your lack of spiritual zeal takes a toll on your wife takes a toll on your children. And every day, we have to turn again to look to Jesus and let that fire be lit inside of us again. Let us set the pace in our homes with zeal, with passion, with love for the God who loves us. Cling to Christ. You know, the song, my, uh, is, my, my hope is not in my ability to cling to Christ, but his ability to hold on to me. But you better believe I'm going to be holding on to him every single day as much as I can. I want my grip to be on him as tight as possible. I want to follow him. I want my passion not to wane. Goodness, there's too many men that are passionless with their life in the spirit and their life as a child of God. And your passion levels are going to be different than mine. My, I'm telling you what, you know, we, we're all different people. And I'm pretty like, passionate about everything to the point that I've driven Jordan absolutely nuts during hunting season. <laughs> like if I have to hear anything else about deer or that stinking trail cam, and honey, I'm sorry, kids, I'm sorry. It's just, I, I'm just tremendously annoying. Because I get on something, I'm just on it, on it, on it, on it. I'm passionate about that thing, zealous about that thing, can't let that thing go, whatever that thing is. And guys, it's, there's seasons, and I felt like this recently. I felt like, I felt like my zeal for the Lord had in some way, and just in my personal time with the Lord, has been waning. And it's been alarming. It's like, God, I don't want my zeal for you in my private life to wane. God, may it build. 
Help me to set the pace in my home always for pursuit of the Lord. And man, if we will not, our sins will have consequences in our homes with the people we love the most and within our church. We see this. The men's sin led to the sins of their daughters and their wives. And I think that should be scary for them and it should be scary for us. We want the holiness of our wives. We want the holiness of our children. And so we have got to look to Christ. There's no condemnation in this. If we're to move forward as men in any step of life in our life, with any step of zeal, with any break in the habits of sin, it's going to happen with the banner, no condemnation, right over our head. We never get better by way of condemnation, ever. We only get better through the grace of God and by the grace of God alone. And so God turns to the men and says, it's because of you. We have to take holiness seriously. So goes the man, so goes the family, so goes the church, so goes the world. To the good or to the evil. To the good or to the evil. You can see analysis of this. Just go to fatherhood.gov. I've talked to you about it before. The, when the men are not present, the family falls apart. Ladies, your purpose in the home obviously is invaluable as well. But men, we're called to account. We see that rulers are corrupt, even the rulers, not just the, not just the clergymen, but also the rulers in Egypt. Think the prophets, think the, think the kings. And we know the long, sad history of the kings of Israel, the northern kingdom, and even the kings of Judah, where they rebel against the God who called them. Look at verse 15-19. Though you play the whore, O Israel, let not Judah become guilty. Enter not into Gilgag, nor go up into Bethaven. And swear not, as the Lord lives, like a stubborn heifer, Israel is stubborn. Can the Lord now feed them like a lamb in a broad pasture? Ephraim is joined to idols. Leave them alone. When their drink is gone, they give themselves to whoring. Their rulers dearly love shame. A wind has wrapped them in its wings, and they shall be ashamed because of their sacrifices." The rulers in the land, we find out, are corrupt because the corruption continues. And we find out an evidence of that corruption is that their rulers dearly love shame in verse 18. Israel had a bunch of bad kings. It's a very rare thing for a king in, in Israel or in Judah to do what God would require. The country was in bad shape all the way around, from the top to the bottom to the left to the right. And any nation whose rulers, this is a principle that just didn't apply to ancient Israel or the kingdoms of Israel. It also applies to the kingdoms of this world. Any nation whose rulers are evil, they're in a bad spot. They're in trouble. They're in trouble. When you're to the point that you have evil rulers, your land is hurting and your land is under judgment. Bad rulers are a sign of the present judgment of God, not of the future judgment of God. What that tells us is even in the state of Illinois, the fact that J.B. Pritzker is our governor, we are under some sort of judgment. It is judgment from God when we have rulers that do not care anything about Him. And Pritzker is a child of the devil doing his bidding. And if he does not repent and get right with the Lord, then we should pray that his downfall would be swift. One or the other. That his repentance would come now or his downfall would come now. We need godly governors in the land, godly princes, godly kings, godly leaders everywhere. Is it better or is it worse if a godly governor is in place? It's better. We should want that. We should pray for that. Is it worse when somebody's in charge locally, regionally, or at the state level or national level? Is it better or worse when we have people who hate God and hate His people? It's worse. We need godly leaders. 
This is the problem in Israel, is even amongst the people of God, the leaders at the state level were corrupt to the core. So Hosea ends up going on for a whole other chapter. And he begins to talk to Israel more and Judah more. We're going to look at more of this next week. And this whole argument from chapter 4 or 5, the whole word from Israel and to Judah, continues on into chapter 6. And so for the sake of time today, we're going to jump to his concluding remarks in this first address that we see in chapter 6, verse 1 through 3. And then we're going to come back next week and we're going to start with chapter 5. So the whole word to Israel and Judah continue on through all of chapter 5 and we bump into chapter 6, verse 1 through 3. And I want you to see Hosea's appeal. Okay, now what? Everybody's corrupt. Everybody's playing the W word. So what now? Okay, what do we do? Is it just doomed? Is this, what, what, what now? So what is the action that's required from the people of God? Well, here's his appeal. An appeal, sadly, they failed to listen to. Chapter 6, verse 1 through 3. Come, let us return to the Lord. You can almost see Hosea just crying out. Come, let us return to the Lord. For he has torn us that he may heal us. He has struck us down that he may build us up. And after two days he will revive us. And on the third day he will raise us up that we may live before him. Let us know. Let us press on to know the Lord. And he is going out as sure as the dawn. And he will come to us as showers, as the spring rains that water the earth. Hosea does make an appeal. I think he means it with every fabric in his being. Would you please return to the Lord? Would you stop doing what you're doing and just come back to the Lord? Hosea makes this personal. Let us return to the Lord. He includes himself. Let us all return to the Lord, verse 1. And he says that God has tore down that he may heal. God has done this tearing that he may heal. God has struck down that he may build up. Hosea understands the sovereignty of God in a moment of despair. Hosea understands that the plight that they are now in that Israel is now in, even that plight is a part, and that judgment that will be coming is a part of God's sovereign rule in their history. God is at work even in their rebellion, and at times God tears us down, tears His people down, and shakes us out that He may build us up. The people of God at times need to be torn. We need to bleed a little bit. We need to be shaken to reality. And down throughout history, God has been in the business of giving people, His people, wake-up calls. Wake up! Wake up! If you're asleep, welcome back. Wake up. He's in the business of doing stuff like that. When the people of God go astray, God will bring upon them at times fatherly calamity. And grab them by the shoulder and say, look what's become of you. Look what's become of you. You're unrecognizable. Look around to the nations, the pagan nations around you. You're unrecognizable. Look at the privilege you have of being God's people that you're just throwing away. For some, tearing down and breaking down end up working as the smelling salts that wake them up and and leave them different the rest of their lives. But to others, it ends up being the breaking point that goes to full apostasy. There's some in Israel that hear this hard word from Hosea they would have not returned. Said, no, we're done. God's not going to do for us what we want Him to do. If He doesn't approve of us, what 
we want him to approve, we're done. And we see that here today. We see that across the world and down throughout history. The true people of God come out the other side healed up and bound up. Nobody loves discipline in the moment. It's unpleasurable, the author of Hebrews tells us. But in the end, it brings a fruitful reward of righteousness, of holiness. I think God's doing that now. I think that we have wicked rulers and whorish churchmen. I think the nation has suppressed the truth to the point of sheer and willful stupidity. Israel inquired of pieces of wood. We inquire from experts who tell us that we can eat outside in a tent parking lot and we can't eat inside in a building. Just talking to pieces of wood. Tell us what we can do. Go to an unventilated tent in the parking lot. Okay, obviously. Experts. Who are you to question the experts? They're telling us to do this. We have to. You're talking to a staff, a piece of wood. We've degenerated to the point of sheer stupidity. Look at verse 2. We get a pointer here. After two days, he will revive us. On the third day, he will rise us up that we may live before him. Now, no New Testament author points back to this passage and says it's a shadow of resurrection. But in Luke 24, as we get this appeal, he gets some sort of promise of Revival. He will revive us. And then some sort of resurrection that's going to happen on the third day. He will rise us up. And as people who know this Jesus, this know this Jesus has been resurrected on the third day, we have to. I mean, as I'm reading this, and all these commentators are like, most likely, this is one of the passages that people are talking about, that Paul was talking about in 1 Corinthians 15, talking about the scriptures speaking of the resurrection from the dead. And although this passage is never referenced in the New Testament, We know that Jesus said in Luke 24, he did a whole walkthrough through the entire Old Testament. And he told the guys on the road to Emmaus, he told the the disciples, the boys, as they're walking to Emmaus, seven mile walk, and he, he laid out for them everything in the Old Testament that declared things about him. And I can imagine getting to Hosea and saying, remember this, that whole second day revival thing, third day resurrection thing. Remember the second half of verse, uh, verse two in Hosea chapter six, or verse three, verse two. When I said, on the third day, he will rise us up. When I used the word us, when we talked about that, when when the Holy Spirit inspired that, that was about me being raised on the third day and that you will be raised with me. We'll be raised up with you as, as I was raised up. You also have been raised up and now you have life. We see the promises of death and destruction are not the end, but even in this, we have promises and appeals of revival and resurrection. It's pointers. We will be revived, even raised up that we may live. Jesus' death and resurrection is the answer to Israel's problems, and it's the answer of the world's problems today. It's the answer to the church today. It's as simple as returning back to Jesus, loving Him for who He is and what He has done, and following Him in His commandments. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. We want to see revival in this land today. Then every churchman across this land needs to be committing committed to loving and obeying the Lord Jesus Christ. You won't be tiptoeing anymore. Pastors won't be apologizing anymore. Churches will be excited about following the Lord Jesus Christ and obeying Him. That's what I want for us. We get to follow our King. Is there anything better in life than that? 
He saved us and forgiven us our sins and told us that there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. None. We have assurance of salvation. What is there to be afraid of? We have the greatest gifts in the world. And so verse 3 says, let us press on to know the Lord. So today, today, what does this mean for today? Right now, what's the takeaway points? What are we going to walk away with? For our local assembly, number one, here's the appeal to you. The appeal to you from Hosea chapter, chapter 4 down through chapter 6, verse 1 through 3. Number one, be eager to listen to God's word and obey. Last week, Andy opened with, let us be hearers of, not just hearers of the word only, but doers also. Be a hearer and a doer of God's word. Listen and obey, for there is no other way. Well, I think it's trust and obey, isn't it? Listen and obey goes along too with that. Listen and obey. Trust and obey. There's no other way. Two, there's a command to our pastors here, to me, to our pastors. Fear God over men. The elders in the room. Okay, elders, there's George. Andy's in the back, Adam's somewhere, Lito, Adam's in the back, Lito's not here today, and Brandon is soon to be elder. Fear God over men. And if I could say that to every pastor in this town who's fearing men over God, I would plead with them, please fear God over men or judgment's coming your way. Fellow churchmen, may we give the people that God has entrusted to us in this local assembly here, may we give them the Word of God in right measure and right tone. Right measure and right tone. With love and compassion and with forcefulness and zeal. Right tone and right measure. Then to us in the room, oh, and pastors, we have to be who God has called us to be. We have to continually manage our household will well through the power of the Holy Spirit. Then to all of us, let us look continually to Christ who is that resurrected one. Look away from self and look to Jesus Christ. The path forward in holiness is always through Jesus Christ, not around Jesus Christ. We look to Him and receive encouragement, counsel, guidance. We receive power. He's the one who says He's with us even to the end of the age. And then, as verse 3 states, let us press on to know the Lord. Let us press on to know the Lord. That's our commission to this local assembly. Then to the church, the so-called pastors in our town who support LGBTQ+, you must repent or perish. First Presbyterian Church, the Church of Christ downtown, and others are mocking the living God, and they need to quit today. Every pastor in the visible church that has handed over the keys of the kingdom to the state must repent or perish. The churchmen must rise to the occasion. The people of God must find real preaching and true shepherds. They must be eager to hear and obey God. And to the church as a whole, we must remember the Lord Jesus Christ, return to Him in humble repentance. And to the whole church, we must press on to know Him and follow Him or else. Let's pray.